not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. We began last week with chapter 12, or at least we covered the bulk of chapter 12. Maybe that's a more accurate way to put it. And chapter 12 marks the beginning of what is called the interregnum, which is a fancy word for pause, between the typical revelation cycles of seven. You remember the seven? How's it begin? Seals, followed by the seven trumpets. Excellent. Then we are at the interregnum, and then we're going to be doing the seven censor angels. And that really brings Revelation to a conclusion. So you can think of it as these three parts with an interregnum, or you can think of the interregnum as a fourth part if you like. But what we see in this interregnum, beginning in chapter 12, is it really begins with the birth of Jesus. You see two signs in heaven. The first is the woman who's about to give birth. The second sign is the great red dragon, and the dragon wants to consume the child. The woman gives birth, but God snatches the child up into heaven. So right there, very briefly, you have the, the incarnation, the birth, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus all packed in there. And then, of course, at his ascension, what happens? Everything in heaven changes. Everything in heaven changes. The dragon who had been permitted in heaven to accuse the brethren day and night, John says, that's the language he uses, can no longer do so. How come? How come? Has the world ceased sinning? No. His head's been crushed. Okay, that's one way of thinking about it. All sin has been paid for. That's probably a little bit more close to the, the language and logic. Because the blood of the Lamb has made atonement for all sins, there are no sins for the red dragon to accuse. There are no, there are no brethren whom he can accuse. As soon as he does, you know, it's sort of a pictured as a king's courtroom where the king is as judge holding court. And if the devil brings an accusation against you or me or any other one of the brethren... The Lord stands up and says, pardon me, there, there's no sin there that I have not already paid for. Justice has already been meted out. Justice is fulfilled, and therefore this accusation of the dragon is false. All right. So then, the Lord has the great bailiff, St. Michael the archangel, kick Satan out. That initiates a war between Michael and the good angels and Satan and the bad angels, and of course, uh, remarkable to us, hopefully shifting your mental furniture a little bit if it hasn't been already, that the war in heaven takes place at the ascension of Jesus. There's no other record of a war in heaven in all of Holy Scripture except this one that takes place at the ascension of Jesus. Uh, furthermore, heaven, as we might call it, paradise, Abraham's bosom, to be with the Lord, all of these wonderful things, they're absolutely true. But heaven itself as a realm, as a realm, has experienced war, has experienced sin. In fact, as the realm belonging proper to the angels, you see the victory won by Christ is then granted and bestowed upon the angels themselves to execute so that so that Michael and the angels are actually the ones to do the deed. It's not as if God or God the Father or God the Son simply says, okay, depart all of you, uh, you know, Satan and all of you angels who have followed him, all of you rebellious ones. But he does this immediately, immediately through St. Michael and the other angels. It's the angelic realm. They need to take care of this business, and they do. The same thing by extension is going on here in the war motif, the spiritual war motif. We are overcoming Satan, who has now been cast down to earth and woe to the earth, Revelation 12 says. But we are overcoming him by the blood of the Lamb. So just as Jesus gives victory such that St. Michael and the rest of the angels can kick Satan out of heaven. Jesus has given us the victory so that we are prevailing over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. And the culmination of this is he's going to be kicked out of earth. Kicked out of heaven, kicked out of earth, what remains? 
Yeah, the abyss, hell. Right, and that's, that's where we're going to see the devil is going. So that's where we're tracking. That's where we're tracking. Okay? So God likes to work through means and immediately, and Christ is both the king of the angels and the king of men, and his authority over Satan is confirmed by his death on the cross. His victory over death is his victory over Satan. That's where you're exactly right, Chris, that he has crushed the serpent's head, fulfilling that proto-evangelion from Genesis 3. But then he distributes that power and might to St. Michael and the angels so that they clean house, and he distributes that might to us, and we are in the process of cleaning house, even though it doesn't feel like it, even though it quite feels like the opposite um, frequently. We are nonetheless victorious. And Paul uses this language even in such a straightforward epistle as Romans, where he says, the God of peace will crush the serpent under your feet also. It's just as the serpent has been crushed under, under our Lord's feet, so the God of peace will crush the serpent under our feet also. So ours will be the victory. All right. And then heaven and earth obviously need to be made new. So this, this is obviously great foreshadowing toward the end and climax of Revelation. It's not just the earth that needs to be made new. Heaven itself needs to be made new. We need to have a pit place of peace where the dwelling place is with God and men, and men and angels are joined together, and it's one great cosmic family, uh, unbelievable family, diverse and multifaceted family, not only in the great diversity of human beings from all tribes and nations, all languages and peoples, but the great diversity of angelic beings that if you remember from Sessions prior, we spent some time looking at how strange and bizarre the angels are, how wonderful and unique and good these spirits are, uh, and they're part of our eternal family. They're part of the great divine service that goes on for all eternity. Again, if you, you know, if you get bored in church, when I was, when I was a kid, I get a little bored in church, and you look around at all the strange-looking people. You know, when you're when you're like six or seven. You, you pick up on this strangeness. When you get older, you just kind of, no, everybody looks normal. When you're young, everybody looks a little strange, don't they? Yeah, and you, know, you notice the strange features. Yeah, well, in heaven, if you get bored, not that you ever would, but look around and you're going to have all kinds of strange and wonderful creatures to look at. Um, heaven is anything but boring. Church is anything but boring in, uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, the climax of Revelation is the dwelling place of God with man, the marriage feast of Jesus and his bride, the church. We're going to see all of this, but it is all, it is all foreshadowed in chapter 12. Now, the dragon is kicked down and he is persecuting the woman and her offspring, those who obey the commandments of the Lord. This is all language for the devil is presently on earth persecuting the church and we who are born of her, born from the womb of the baptismal font, and the devil is after us all. God is providing for us. God is protecting us in such a way that even if he, even if he kills the body, he cannot kill the soul. So we need not fear him. We need only fear the one true God who can kill both body and soul, as our Lord says. So we fear the Lord Jesus, not the devil. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But this helps us to see what's going on in the world and to understand it theologically. Right? This is all according to God's plan and purpose. Therefore, we need not be afraid. The dragon on earth is doing his worst. He's spewing the flood from his mouth. We talked about the earth is swallowing it up. And then we read at the end of chapter 12 that the dragon is standing at the, he's standing at the sand of the sea, at the seashore. And maybe that's a, that's a good connection because that's what leads into chapter 13. Remember, the chapter breaks in your scripture as well as the verse breaks are artificial. They're not put in until much, much later. So you can see how this simply flows together in the original writing. Um, just looking at verse 17 to get a little more context, verse 17 of chapter 12. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Beautiful description of what it means to be Christian. And he, that is the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw, 
and I saw, John writes, a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. Now, where have we had that exact image before? Seven heads and ten horns. The red dragon. Yes, back in chapter 12, verse 3. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. This beast is described as ten horns and seven heads. Same thing. So we see an immediate connection, an immediate visual connection between the red dragon who's standing at the shore and this beast who is coming up out of the sea. Okay, there's a visual, visual connection. Now, he has ten diadems on its horns. Where are the diadems on the red, on the red dragon? On its head. Now, this might, be a little, this might be a little too subtle, so if you don't like it, fair enough. But then you have to still answer why in one it's on heads and on the other it's on horns. But the head, symbolically speaking, is going to be the thoughts, the ideas, obviously. The horn is always biblically a symbol for power. Okay. So the crown of the, in other words... The crown or the embodiment of the red dragon is the wisdom unto this evil. This beast is going to be the power unto this evil, you see. We've also talked, I think, a bit that if you remember the saints gathered around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and everybody, they're all, if they ever have crowns on, they're casting them down off their heads and casting them down as they as they bow and prostrate themselves at the throne of God. An interesting detail is when you see the evil ones, they always have their crowns on. They're not going to bow to God or to anyone. We are who we are. We have what we have. We are in charge of what we are in charge of. So there's a great, a great arrogance and rebellion, even in the fact that they remain crowned and are, and are depicted uh, as such. Okay, so this beast is going to serve the dragon, and he's going to serve the dragon by way of power. The diadems are on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, so a leopard body. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. We've seen the lion's mouth before with the demonic armies coming up out of the abyss. But what's in mind here is a different image. And for this, we need to flip backwards in our scriptures to Daniel 7. Because there is a quite obvious connection to Daniel 7 with this imagery. Once you're at Daniel 7, we'll just pick up at verse 1 and read a little ways. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Okay, there's your first hint, the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, 
and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. All right. So if you've got one finger on, uh, on your chapter 13 Revelation text, you can see that he looks like a leopard. That comes from the third beast. He's got uh, feet like a bear's. The second beast is described as a bear. And he's got the mouth of a lion. And the first beast is described as being like a lion. So can you see how this is an amalgam, uh, a composite of these three beasts? Okay, verse 7, back in uh, Daniel chapter 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Ah, there it is. There it is. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things, or in the language of Revelation 13, blasphemous things. All right. Flip the page if you're, in the, if you're in the ESV, the Lutheran Study Bible. And you're on to Daniel 7. And lo and behold, look, a section that we've visited at least once, maybe twice, before already in Revelation. You're at the Ancient of Days, the one seated upon the throne, and the Son of Man before him, the Father and the Son, that at various places. You can see how, you can see how uh, John, in painting his vision literarily, is taking from the palette of these Old Testament texts, including here, uh, very prominently, Daniel 7. Now, jump with me, simply for the sake of our purposes in Revelation 13. Jump with me to, uh, well, in passing, take a look at the, take a look at, um, the heading right before verse 15. It says, Daniel's vision interpreted. Okay, now skip with me to verse 17, verse 17 of chapter 7. So here's the interpretation. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. All right, so what in Daniel are these beasts? Well, they are kings or kingdoms. They are worldly political powers. That's what Daniel is seeing. In coloring from this palette, this is precisely what John is indicating to us in Revelation 13. This composite of the four beasts, and and if you want to be particular, many commentaries go this route and simply say that in Revelation 13, this is the fourth beast, the one more terrifying than the others, etc. Okay, what, what do these beasts symbolize? Earthly political power turned against the church, bent toward the purposes of the red dragon in persecuting the woman and her children, to use the imagery of Revelation 12 and 13. Does that make some sense? More sense than seeing, uh, I don't know, some kind of tank or troop carrier or whatever other other, uh, fantastical interpretation we might have regarding this beast. Now, one thing to keep in mind, this is where your Lutheranism will really help you out. 
according to the basic structure of the cosmos, you have three estates. And I say Lutheranism tongue-in-cheek because, of course, this is biblical. But you have three estates. In the very beginning, you have man and woman, husband and wife. The two become one flesh, and that one flesh union manifests itself in children. And that unit is the family. And that's the first estate. It continues to be the first and preeminent estate, which is why in our day and age, in these latter days, what is the devil attacking nonstop? Family. And we, we are absolutely foolish if we sort of dismiss this as, oh, that's a political attack, or that's a, that's a you know, separation between church and state, and that's a, that's a state attack, a left-hand kingdom attack, nothing else. Nonsense. That is the foundation of God's creation, is the family. So the attacks on gender, whereas God makes male and female. The attacks on marriage, whereas male and female only are, are made into one flesh. These things are foundational. Uh, and then the ordering of that, where the male is made first and then the female, and the headship of the male, feminism is in all its different waves and forms, is a direct satanic assault on that order and structuring that God puts into the family. So you can see how all of these attacks are striking at the foundation of God's creation, hoping to unravel it. Now, from the family come the two other estates. The estate of the state, what we sometimes call the right-hand kingdom, government, and the estate of the church, what we sometimes call the left-hand kingdom. Wait, excuse me, the right-hand kingdom. Did I botch that? Gosh, I hate when I do that. Yeah, sorry. Try that again. Erase. Can we edit this out seamlessly? <laughs> That'd be nice if we get the technology to where I make no mistakes. <laughs> That'd be a lot of technology. From the family comes the estate of the state, which we often call the left-hand kingdom. And from the family comes the estate of the church, which we often call the right-hand kingdom. What we're going to see then is you've already got, you've already got the woman with the child. You've already got the woman bearing children. You already have an image here of the family. And the dragon's attacking the family, the first estate. Okay. What we're going to see is in Revelation 13, the beast that comes from the sea is going to be attacking the state, the left-hand state. Okay. It's going to be perverting that and co-opting God's good order in order to persecute the woman and her children, to turn the state against the church. What we'll see, to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, the next beast that arises up out of the earth is going to be the beast that turns the right-hand kingdom itself against God, that perverts and uses religion, religion outside of Christianity and false Christianity itself, to persecute and attack the woman and her children, the church. So what you can see here is a trinity of evil, in the red dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. And you can see how this trinity of evil is attacking the three estates, the trinity of family, state, or government, and church, the very foundation and essence of God's creation. Does that make some sense? Hopefully it'll get clearer as we roll along. But again, when we look back at Daniel 7, it's quite evident that Daniel is talking about political powers here in Revelation 13, it's quite evident that John is talking about political earthly power. All right, that takes us up to the middle part of verse 2 of chapter 13. And to it, namely to this beast, the dragon gave his power and his mouth. Strictly speaking, what is the power of the devil? Sin, but not sin as if sin were something unto its own, but sin that leads to separation. death. Well, separation from the one who is life, yeah. which is death. 
The power of the devil, or yeah, the power of the devil, the power of the red dragon is death. And he gives this power to the state. Now, the dragon's mouth, lying, deceiving, and his power, death. Gosh, where have we heard this before? Like every single corrupt government in the history of the world up into the very present, where the government becomes corrupted from God's good intentions for government, all of Romans 13, where we are to obey government, the government becomes so utterly corrupted that it does nothing but lies and deceives with the mouth of the dragon and then afflicts the church with its power, which ultimately is death. Okay, but death, of course, has other forms uh, preliminary to simply ending your life. In our, in our context, fining you into oblivion, imprisoning you, etc. Okay, long before you're, you're executed, but it's the same thing. All right, well, already we can see kind of a silver lining here, and that silver lining is going to get brighter and brighter until it shines with the light of heaven. But the silver lining is if the worst that this beast and the worst that the dragon can do to you are death, who provides the perfect remedy to that power? Our Lord Jesus Christ, through his resurrection and through the promise of our resurrection. We're baptized with him into a death like his, that we may also be raised with him in a resurrection like his. Romans 6, Christianity 101. This is why in the first century, Christians who were willing to go to death rather than deny their Lord. You have the Roman, the Roman government, the Roman Caesars, saying, rebuke and reject Christ, deny Christ, or die. And the Christians said, yeah, we'll take Christ. This was unbelievable. It shook them to their core because they cannot conceive of any power greater than the power of death. And here Christians, not just men, but women and children, were withstanding them to their face and saying, yeah, no, we've got a remedy to death. You, know, you have no power here, little one. <laughs> I mean, how absolutely unnerving. And it, and it rocked the political powers of the ancient world, of course. It rocks the powers still today. Okay, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, as I said. There's just a little silver lining here, that the power of the dragon and the mouth of the dragon are already easily overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. All right, continuing then. Well, and to the great, or excuse me, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Okay, these heads are thought to refer to historical kings. I think, I think Reardon as is frequently the case, does a great job and a succinct job with this. I can, I can get it to you without hopefully putting you to sleep. Let me find this quick here. Yeah. With respect to his ten horns, two remarks are in order. First, in Daniel 7, the obvious literary background here, the ten horns seem to refer to the ten Seleucid successors of Alexander the Great. Second, here in Revelation 13, they seem to refer to Roman emperors. If we leave out Otho, who reigned over the Roman Empire for only three months, there were, in fact, exactly ten Roman emperors up to Domitian who was responsible for the persecution of A.D. 95. Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Vitilius, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. Almost all of these men were recognized as divine. Now, this is going to be a huge fact when we come up into the beast from the earth. Okay, They're all recognized as divine. So you see the state making itself divine some of them even before their deaths. Words such as theos, Greek for God, and divas, like divine, appear on their coins. 
This figure, therefore, symbolizes the idolatrous pretensions of the Roman Empire, which John ascribes to Satan. Those pretensions claim an unquestioned and absolute allegiance over the human spirit. So it's also true that if, remember, the dragon is standing on the shore, and if you're talking about being in Israel generally, and you're standing on the shore and you're looking out into the sea, what geographically is there? Rome. So if you're looking for a very concrete first century reading of this text, it's Rome with its ten rulers coming up out of the sea to afflict the church of God. More generally then, we simply say it is political tyranny afflicting the church of God. That was how it looked in the first century. What does it look like today? All right, let's continue. Because what about this business? What about this business with the mortal wound and the mortal wound being healed? Reardon writes, The beast of the Roman Empire combines the worst features of all the earlier empires. Daniel's winged lion of Babylon, the bear of the Medes, the leopard of the Persians, and the ten-headed hydra of the Greeks. One may note that John lists these components in the reverse order of Daniel. All right, and then we will... Uh, We'll get into this. Yeah, we'll get into this one. So, hang on one second for me. I want to find it in Brighton. Yes, here we go. And one of its heads was as if it had been fatally wounded unto death, but its wound of death had been healed. The heads of the beast represent kings or rulers of one kind or another. Because the dragon's schemes are carried out according to the intelligence he has given to the beast, which in turn the beast exercises through rulers and leaders in various spheres. The fact that one head was killed indicates that any particular ruler will not remain forever. Rulers come and go. Some come near to death and then survive. Okay, so who might this reference be? The, the horn that then is uh, mortally wounded and then um, healed. There's two historical possibilities. The first is Caligula. The second is Nero. So Brighton continues. Uh, some come near to death and then survive. For example, the Roman emperor Caligula had once become... He, this is 37 to 41 A.D., had once become seriously ill, then unexpectedly revived and recovered. Perhaps for John, this would have served as an example of one of the beast's heads dying, but then being healed. Okay? Closer to the time, here's the other option. Closer to the time when John received the revelation, the emperor Nero, Nero rules from 54 AD to 68, could also have served as an example of one of the beast's heads being mortally wounded. His reign was filled with wickedness. For example, he initiated a fearful persecution of Christians in Rome. Eventually, after being condemned to death by the Roman Senate, he committed suicide in order to escape the fate of dying shamefully as a public enemy. Though he was given a public funeral, the rumor was spread that he had not died but had escaped to Parthia. It was further rumored that he was attempting to raise an army and would return to Rome to regain his throne, etc. All right, so Nero was the original Tupac. A few people got that. A few people. Thanks. Th thank you, all of you who are uh, about 40 or younger. So, all right. So if you're looking for historical figures in terms of the collapse of, of, this, uh, of this head, that's what you have. I think Brighton's point, maybe that he made subtly, is that the heads come and go, but the beast remains. The beast remains. And so that, uh, that is perfect, perfectly fits, then, I think, with this idea of uh, the state turned tyrannical, turned into a beast to afflict the church. 
let's, let's continue, and you'll see how this fits very well with emperor worship and with the only somewhat less subtle worship of our own politics today. Couldn't be more fitting with the election coming up when the savior of the universe will be elected, right? Whoever it is that you think should be elected. Uh, this, is our, this is our version of this idolatry, of course. All right, verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Which just reminds me that every time there's a tragedy, every time there's something that happens, who is going to save us from this? The government. Yeah. A, they should have done something already, and B, now they will do something, and they will make it all better. They will make it all right uh, by their laws and their policies. And, you know. and you can see how rampant this is in our own culture, where the government's going to save us from literally everything. Okay. They worship the dragon. That's worship of Satan, even though they don't realize it. They don't realize it, but that's precisely what it is. We're going to see that this is quite binary. You either, by the end of this whole thing, you're either worshiping the dragon or you're worshiping the lamb. You have no choice. It's one or the other. You're worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or you're worshiping the dragon and the two beasts. You either have the unholy trinity and his mark, or you have the holy trinity and his mark. It's completely binary. Nobody escapes. You're one column or the other. All right, um, then they were saying, so this is kind of the world's like, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Which is what every, every citizen of every world superpower has always thought. There's no possible way we're going to be toppled, ever. Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. I cannot imagine a politician, let alone all of them, doing that. <laughs> haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Okay, we've looked at that. That's the time times and half a time. That's the 1,260 days, etc. It's that same period. That period just always referring to the time of the Christ event to the end but that number indicating that it's persecution taking place, persecution for the church. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. What's our anthem in regard to this? Imagine. Yeah, isn't, isn't one of the lines, imagine there is no heaven? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. I'm not saying that's the fulfillment of this verse. I'm not saying that John 100 years ago was like, you know, there's going to be this really weird place called the United States of America, and I'm going to write this specifically in there for them. No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that this universally applies, and you'll find examples of this in every single culture these blasphemous words of, of the beast against heaven. And in our culture, that's one example. Verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Yes, as century after century have shown, as the 20th century showed, there, is, uh, there were more martyrs in that one century than in all centuries prior. Uh, the, the beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Just as, just as we saw all the way back with the, uh, with the two witnesses of chapter 11, you remember? And the two witnesses um, are, are in conflict with the beast from the bottomless pit, and that beast kills them, and they rise again. So to here, this beast, different beast, this beast makes war on the saints and conquers them, kills them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. 
So again, it's the lamb or the beast. And here you have the, just a beautiful, beautiful articulation that is completely intended to give us great peace and comfort that our names have been written in the book of the Lamb before the foundation of the world. And what God is making known to us in time and space through the preaching of His Word, through the action of His Holy Spirit, has been determined before the foundation of the world. So if you want to know if your name was written in the book of the Lamb before the foundation of the world, it's impossible for us to go back in time. It's possible for us to fly up into heaven and see it. But what you do recognize is the fact that your name is there is indicative that, of the fact that God is in time and space proclaiming salvation to you, binding you to Him in holy baptism, making you His child forgiving your sins, feeding you at the supper of the Lamb, the supper of His Son. All of these things to hold you and confirm you and assure you. And then, you know, you could say, well, what if I botch it? I've pretty much botched everything. I'm likely to botch salvation too. Okay, God has it so in His hands, he's, and He's taken it so out of your hands that before the foundation of the world, He wrote your name there. So wonderfully comforting. So wonderfully comforting. And we simply receive that proclamation as children in faith. Believe it. All right, so he has authority over everyone, and everyone worships this beast. Everyone worships power, political power, except for those whose names have been written in the book of life, the book of the Lamb. And I love this, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, our Lord Jesus Christ, and life in him. And so that's precisely why we don't worship the one who has the power of death, because we worship the one who has the power of life, and his life overcomes death, as we see on Easter. And that's good enough for us. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. So we trust, and we too shall rise. So John's going to give us a little encouragement here, verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Uh, This proverb is similar to one found in Jeremiah, though not identical. Here it is meant entirely for our comfort. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. I mean, such beautiful comfort in this. Because it's like, it's like if you land in, in jail for, or prison for being a Christian, so be it. If you end up slain for being a Christian, worshiping the Lamb, refusing the beast, so be it. If you're destined for captivity, into captivity you go. If you're destined to be slain, you'll be slain. It affects nothing. It changes nothing. The worst they can do to you is nothing. In fact, we can even kind of teasingly say the very worst they can do is the very best that can happen to you. Because if they kill you, you are now face-to-face with who? Ah, yeah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are safe, and we are secure, and the dragon and the two beasts can never harm us again. So, that's it. That's all they can do. They're in a lose-lose situation, by the way, because um, as they persecute the church, the church grows. That's the irony. The persecuted church grows. The comfortable church shrinks. That's why the church in the West is shrinking. We're very much too comfortable. But even, even just anecdotally, and very, very small window, but anecdotally, COVID has been a, dare I say it, I don't want to minimize the sorrow or the tragedy that's caused in many people's lives. Spiritually, COVID has been a blessing to our congregation. It's been a blessing to our congregation because it has, it has enkindled the hearts of many. It has made clear to many that we have been living too comfortably and too apathetically. And it has, it has flipped the switch on for many of us so that now we're burning brighter and more passionately with the love of Christ than ever before. So that's what I mean by it. The devil can't, the devil can't win. If he, if he lets us be, the gospel spreads. If he persecutes us, the gospel spreads even faster. Beautiful and glorious thing. All right, so it's a call for endurance. If I could preach a thousand sermons on one word, that would be it, because it's the key to everything. 
I think. It's the key to all of our problems. Endure. Be faithful and endure. Life will prove to be very short. God will give you the strength you need. Endure and trust. That's endurance and faith. Okay, well, any thoughts you have on the first beast? We've got a few minutes here, and if not, maybe I'll plug us into the second beast. This is actually not necessarily on the first beast, but on the, the book that our names are written in. Yeah. Uh, in some translations, it says the book of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In others, it says our names were written before the foundation of the world, right, in the, the, right, the book of the Lamb slain. Mm-hmm. So it, I'm wondering which is right. I mean, because that's an interesting phrase. I mean, and I've heard people use that before. They talk about the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, mm-hmm. uh, that somehow... Uh, Christ's crucifixion was sort of baked in the cake from the right from the very beginning, mm-hmm. um, and you know I don't know what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I just looked at it on, in Greek on my phone, and and it looked like it does say the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That's at the end of the text, but I don't know how the Greek actually parses out. Yeah, the church's dogmatics are very clear on this. I mean, virtually all of the church fathers agree, and this is codified for us in the Book of Concord, where we treat on election, Article 11 of the Formula of Concord. Um, there's no doubt about it that Christ's death on the cross isn't like a, like a plan B, where God's like, hey, I created this perfect world. Oh, no, they botched it. What do I do now? <laughs> I mean, his, in his foreknowledge, and here, remember, our confessions take up Augustine's distinction between foreknowledge and causation. So in God's foreknowledge, he sees the fall, and he plans and makes preparation for the redemption in Christ Jesus. doesn't mean he causes the fall. And so that's, that's then our position. So Christ crucified before the foundation of the world in and of itself, absolutely true. Um, our names written before the foundation of the world, absolutely true. And you can find other verses that really assert as much. We're not hanging out on this one anti-legomena text that is of, you know, yeah, questionable grammatical substance, right? That the doctrine and teaching of election is much more widespread. I mean, it sounded to me like you, you parsed it. It sounded to me like you parsed it out that our names were written before the foundation of the world. But I've seen it done both ways, and I'm just wondering which is right. Mm. In terms it's, of the well, parsing, it's probably, you know, it's probably I, mean, I mean, without without looking it up and spending the time to do that, it's. I mean, I simply parsed it out the way the ESV parsed it out. I'm literally reading from the ESV yeah, yeah. here. Um, but, and Stephen Manns, are you in here? Good. You can back me up on this or tell me I'm wrong. Um, but it looks to me, the name in the Biblio, in the book of life, of the Lamb, foundation of the world. It looks perfectly ambiguous enough to have either reading. Great. <laughs> well, which, which is why you have the... Now, Stephen, you can correct me if there's a preferred reading that you see, but, um, but that, I mean, that makes perfect sense then why you've got good, solid translations just going two different ways with it. And I would argue that both are true. Sure. It's one of these lovely things where you don't need to make a decision. They're both, yeah, they're both true. All right. Anything else on the, uh, the first beast? Let's, let's get a little bit into the second beast. We're not going to get all the way because the second beast, a lot of time is spent on the second beast. In fact, one of the indicators of the complexity of the second beast is there are at least three different ways that relation, uh, Revelation describes the second beast. A, as the second beast. B, as the false prophet. And C, as the harlot. All references to this one entity. And of course, I've already spilled the beans that this is really false religion inside and outside of the church in ultimate service of power, power being embodied in the political estate which wields the sword, and then these two powers underneath the authority of the dragon and bent and used, apart from the good purposes God has given, bent and used to persecute the woman and her children, the church. Make sense? Okay, let's get a little bit into it. I love when I say make sense and everybody just kind of stares at me like, nope. 
<laughs> Having to exercise my confidence up here. All right, uh, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Here's a good place. Here's a good place to crescendo and end. All right, the first beast is rising up out of the sea, and the second out of the earth. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, the last referent where we have these two things, the sea and the earth together, takes us back to chapter 10. Takes us back to chapter 10. So this is in the middle of these dark passages where we're talking about the dragon and the beast and their sway over the world. If we go back to chapter 10, here is a beautiful way to end, a beautiful reminder for us. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. Here's one of those amazing, odd, strange, wonderful, unspeakably great angels I was referencing at the beginning of class. There, this, this gentleman is in all likelihood part of our family and we'll see him in heaven and we'll see him worshiping the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. All right, verse 2, He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Which is right where, what? The beasts come up from. And he's got his foot on both of them. This is completely under control. Completely under control. Whatever it is the beast can do, they do under the permission of God. Indeed, under the, under the permission that God gives, under the authority that God gives to the angels themselves. So there's nothing to fear that one of these beasts is somehow going to get out of hand and actually do damage apart from anything that God had intended. These beasts are completely under control. So this humongous angel has one foot, one fiery pillar in the sea, and the other foot, one fiery pillar on the land. And he calls out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and so forth. We'll go on. But look... Already we've been told that what comes up out of the earth, what comes up out of the sea, these are under the feet of the angels. These are under the feet of God. All right, that's probably enough for today. We'll dig into the second beast in earnest next week. The Lord be with you.